forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is a kingdom, power, glory forever. Amen. Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, so good to see each of you today. Uh, my name is Peter, and I have just the incredible privilege of being one of the pastors here. And uh, if you know, uh, we're going through a sermon, uh, summer sermon series called Christ in the Old Testament. And we're doing this because Jesus told us that the entire Old Testament scriptures pointed to and were fulfilled in him. The Old Testament is made up of 46 books. And each of the books are filled with hundreds of stories that has even, even more hundreds of, of heroes that make up these stories. And we'll see from various places in the Old Testament that they all really do point ahead to the one true hero of God's story. And as we see Jesus as the hero of the Old Testament, it is our prayer that we would not only learn how to read the Old Testament scriptures in a more Christ-centered way... Uh, but that we would also worship Jesus and appreciate Jesus as we behold who he is and what he's done for us. Over the past several weeks, the messages we've heard have shown us Christ in the garden, Christ in the palace, and last week, Christ in the promise. Today, we'll be hearing about Christ in the desert. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Numbers 21. We'll be reading verses 4 through 9. This is God's holy word. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if, and if a serpent bit anyone, and he would look at the bronze serpent and live." This is the word of the Lord. 2020 and part of 2021 has been unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. Looking back, it's hard not to feel like COVID-19 has robbed many of us of the most important parts of our lives. Being able to freely live life with the people we love and being able to gather like this as a church. But over the past couple months, thankfully, at least here in the Northern Virginia area, things have been getting better. Things are opening up. Uh, we're able to do things, go places, meet people, gather like this, and live more like the way life is meant to be lived. And one of the main reasons for that has been, as you know, the COVID-19 vaccine. I still remember walking in to get my first dose. And I don't think many of us will ever forget that moment. I remember driving into the Inova parking lot, walking up to the line, seeing all the people, getting my shot, and then just the feeling of invincibility walking back to my car. As the weeks pass by, seeing more and more people out and about, seeing all of you here, it's been so good and so invigorating because it's clear that the vaccine 
has changed everything. Our passage this morning tells us about a different kind of vaccine we all need. A potent, powerful, and life-giving vaccine that, if you find it, will change everything. We're going to hear about two things from our passage as we hear about this vaccine. First, we're going to hear the story of Israel and the desert serpent. And second, we're going to see the sign of the desert serpent fulfilled in Christ. First, the story of Israel and the desert serpent. This story shows us two very important truths about us and about the gospel. And what we're going to see is, first, the virus we all have, and second, the vaccine we all need. First, the virus. There's a virus in our story, and it's not COVID-19. It's something more scarier and far more deadly. And what we're going to see about this virus is both the symptom of the virus as well as the source of the virus. First, the symptom of the virus. What are the symptoms that we see that show up in our story? The symptom we see, and one of the first things that we read in our passage, is that Israel complains. Verse 4 tells us, the people became impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. Why? They asked. Let's pause just for a moment and, and see the big picture, because the book of Numbers essentially begins where the book of Exodus ends. And if you know the book of Exodus, you know that uh, uh, Israel was rescued from Egypt and God leads them to the desert where they meet with him on Mount Sinai and they receive the law. And, and the book of Numbers then describes Israel's journey from Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab, which is just a, a patch of land just beyond the Jordan River, right before the promised land. The land that God promised to lead his people where they can call home. So the book of Numbers retells a unique time in the story of Israel. They've just been rescued. They meet with God in the desert. And now they're on a journey. And on that journey, one of the major sins Israel commits again and again and again is that they complain. And because of their complaints, God punishes them. And their punishment was that none of the adults would enter the promised land except two faithful Israelites, Joshua and Caleb. And so instead of a short 11-day road trip, which is just only how long this trip should have taken, uh, the Israel spends 40 years wandering through the desert. And after 40 years of wandering, after all the complaining adults die, our story picks up here in Numbers 21. They set out again to the promised land. And as they set out again, what do we find these people doing? They complain. And uh, unlike all the previous times where they complain against Moses, here for the first time, we see them complain against God. Verse 5 tells us that people spoke against God and against Moses. Now there's a difference between complaining to God and complaining at God. One laments, the other loathes. As a Christian, it's completely right and so needed to complain to God about the injustices that we suffer and the difficulties that we go through. Waiting on God, as we heard about last week, includes going to God in prayer with your complaints. When life gets tough and there's nothing you can do but wait, you should complain to God because God is a compassionate God and he cares for you. And just read the Psalms. It's full of lamenting prayers where the psalmist complains to God about the injustices that he suffers. So if you're suffering, if you're heartbroken, if your world feels like it's coming apart and you just can't go on, know that you can always go to God. 
Go to God with your complaints. He actually invites you and desires for you to complain to him. Because your complaints don't perplex God or provoke God. But God in his providence is really working out all things, including the difficult things and the confusing things for your good and his glory. But as you complain to God, which is really just a form of prayer, you'll experience and grow an intimacy that you otherwise would never have with God. And that's what he desires because he desires you. But complaining to God is not what we see Israel do in our story, is it? Israel doesn't uh, complain to God. Israel complained at God. And we know they're complaining at God because they twist their words and it reflects their twisted hearts. Verse 5 describes their complaints at God when they say, for there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, so Israel complains that they've got nothing to eat and nothing to drink and whatever they have to eat and drink is no good. But if you know the story, you know that God in his fatherly care miraculously provided food for Israel every single day. He led them through the desert. Can you imagine walking 40 years and God miraculously providing you food? And, and you see, Israel wasn't complaining because they suffered some great injustice. They were just rescued from a great injustice. They were oppressed and abused and enslaved for over 400 years in Egypt. But God saves them, delivers them, leads them, and provides for them as they travel through the desert. Every morning, God provided a wafer-like bread called manna for breakfast. Every evening, God sent quail for dinner. God miraculously and generously provided carbs and protein every single day. I mean, what more could you ask for? I mean, this was most certainly a blessing. But these people, Israel, twists their words and describes this food as miserable. And this word miserable most closely relates to the word we have for cursed. So in other words, they call this blessing a curse because their twisted hearts twisted their reality. They were complaining at God. When you complain at God, the good things are bad and what you have is never enough. You're pessimistic. You're always pessimistic in your perspective, your faith, uh, your attitude. It filters what you see. It fuels how you feel. It drives how you live. Your spouse doesn't give you what you need. Your children aren't as successful as they should be. Your job makes you dread going into work every single day. The church doesn't meet your expectations. People don't care enough. You don't have enough. Life is not good enough. Now, all of us feel these things at different moments in our lives, but our passage warns us, when you do, complain to God. Don't complain at God. Complaining to God leads you to God. As you seek God in prayer, as you pray your prayers of complaints and laments to him. But complaining at God leads you away from God to loathe life, loathe people, loathe yourself, and even loathe God himself. Complaining to God makes you tender towards the spirit, compassionate towards those who are suffering, dependent on God to give you the strength and provision to get you through whatever it is that you need to get through. But complaining at God will only make you grow resentful, bitter, depressed, and angry. 
This is what complaining at God looks like. And this is what our story warns us not to do because that's what Israel did. And that's the symptom. Next, we see the source. Our story tells us that the source of the virus is our sin. And our passage describes this through uh, these fiery serpents. Verse 6 tells us, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that when the people of Israel were bit, they died. Scholars say that these fiery serpents found in our story were probably a species called the carpet vipers. And carpet vipers are relatively small snakes, uh, don't grow to more than 12 inches long, but they're highly poisonous snakes. And they're from Africa and known to be throughout the Middle East. And our story describes these snakes as fiery serpents. And it literally translates to burners. Right, these were burners. And this wasn't because these serpents set you on, or these uh, serpents weren't on fire. They would set you on fire. That when they bit you, that you burned from the inside out. One article said that when you're bitten by one of these snakes, that there's an initial fiery swelling where you're bitten. And as the venom circulates your body, it wreaks absolute havoc. You see, the venom, it didn't just kill, it destroyed. The, the, the toxins would break down the membranes that line the blood vessels that uh, allow your body to, to uh, clot blood. So you wouldn't be able to clot blood. And the place that where you, you were bit, um, it would uh, just eat and devastate the tissues around so that even if you survive the bite, that you might even lose entire limbs. Eventually, the bite would lead to a raging fever, an insatiable burning thirst, then a crippling paralysis, blindness, and ultimately death. And this, friends, is a picture. It's a picture of the suffocating effects of sin. Our story tells us that Israel didn't trust God. And because they didn't trust God, they were not content with God. They didn't find life in God. And when you distrust God, when you're discontent with God, when you despise God, when your source of life isn't in the God who made you and knows you, but rather you try to find life in other things that may give you joy for a moment, but in the end will leave you dissatisfied, disgruntled, disfigured, and desiring more, this suffocates the life out of your soul. And in the end, your soul will be lifeless. This is what our story shows, and it points to our ultimate source of our deepest problem, which is our sin. Sin suffocates your soul and will one day, apart from God's grace, destroy you. A few weeks ago, we learned about the creation story. And in the garden, we read that Eve, uh, when Eve was tempted, it led to Adam's sin. And what coincidentally shows up to tempt Eve? That's right, a snake, right? Adam and Eve's disobedience was ultimately a rejection of God. They chose to find life outside of God, and because of it, they were separated from God. And just like Adam and Eve, Israel's root problem in their complaints was that they were trying to find life outside of God. Adam and Eve's sin was Israel's sin. And this is our sin as well. When we choose to find life in anything other than God, it's toxic. It's toxic to our soul. It's a virus, and it'll suffocate you and ultimately destroy you. Every single one of us that's in here today, for both the Christian and non-Christian, your greatest problem today, 
Your most real problem today is your sin. Your problem is that you don't find life in God and instead uh, you look to find joy and satisfaction and security and worth and significance outside of God. And we all do this. I do this all the time. You know, when I first started playing tennis a number of years ago, I picked it up as something to, to do with my wife who played uh, um, through high school. So something that we did during dating. And, um, but uh, kind of like a lot of things, pretty soon I, I got really into it. And uh, when we were living down in Florida during seminary, uh, I would go out and play at a weekly round robin someone would organize. So a bunch of people would show up when we would play matches. And there I remember meeting a, an older lady named Martha. Martha was probably in her 60s, maybe even 70s. And uh, Martha wasn't quick, she wasn't powerful, but if she could get to a ball, she would always hit it back. And, uh, and if you play tennis, you know that it can be so frustrating to play with someone that always hits the ball back. Now, as I uh, went out on Saturdays, I played Martha more and more, and I noticed I found myself become just a little obsessed with beating Martha in tennis. Okay, actually, I became a lot obsessed. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, did, it just didn't make sense to me. You know, I was faster, I was stronger, I could hit harder, but she would always, always beat me. And I remember you know, during the week, I would YouTube different strategies, I would practice with people, I even got a coach, and it was really like I was gearing up to play Martha on Saturday. Right? Forget theological studies in seminary, I wanted to win. When Martha beat me, I'd literally be miserable the whole day, and it would eat at me the whole week until the next week I could play Martha. You see, in a silly but very real way, I found life in beating Martha in tennis. When I won, uh, eventually, I I actually started winning. Uh, It gave me so much satisfaction, which is pretty sad. But it only lasted a few moments. Only a few moments. Uh, It filled me with temporary joy uh, when I won and when I lost, it ruined my day and it fueled my obsession during the week. Now, it's almost impossible to live here in Nova without feeling like you're sort of competing with everyone around you. If, If you're from here, you know what that means. You know what that feels like. There's a certain pressure to succeed and keep up living here. Pressure as a student pressure in your careers, pressure with your finances, pressure with your present or future family. And our joy depends on how we measure up. Maybe you don't find life by feeding into this pressure to succeed like most of us do, but we're all tempted to make something other than God to be the source of your life. Some of us crave rest So we go on vacations and daydream about vacations and retirement. Uh, Some of us find life in our morality. And so we we read and know our Bibles. We're not promiscuous. We don't get drunk. Some of us find life in our immorality. And we, we chase food and chase drink and chase cheap intimacy. And apart from God's grace, whatever it is that we all look to find life in, when we find life in them, they'll rob life from us. And it'll suffocate your soul, ruin relationships, and ultimately lead to an eternal and fiery separation from God. Someone once said that hell is simply our chosen path going on for eternity. If we want to get away from God, if we want to find life outside of God, God in his justice will send us where we want to go. 
So that's the virus. It's dangerous. It's deadly. Which is why it's so crucial that our story also tells us about the vaccine. The vaccine. Our story tells us a couple things about the vaccine. And first, we see the scandal of the vaccine. In verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. Now God commands Moses to take some bronze, melt it, make it into a snake figure, and hang it up on a pole. So Moses collects some bronze, which coincidentally is, is the metal in the Old Testament associated with judgment. And he puts it in some fire, heats to a very high temperature, crafts it into the shape of these uh, snakes, and hangs it on a pole. And the judgment the Israelite deserved could be wiped away. And what God tells Moses to do here is surprisingly scandalous. It's scandalous because snakes, if you know, were viewed to be divinely cursed animals. When God pronounces judgment on creation back in Genesis, because of Adam's sin, remember he also curses the snake. But here, for the first time, and maybe, maybe the only time throughout uh, Scripture, God uses a cursed snake to bless and heal his people. But it's also surprising because the very thing God uses to punish the people, he uses to heal them. He uses the snake that he shapes into a figure, uh, snakes that bit the people, as a figure that would save the people. And so the vaccine is surprisingly scandalous. We also see, second, the prescription of the vaccine. How did one receive this vaccine? Did you have to go find an iNovo or go to CVS? No. As simple as that might have been, not even that. Verse 9 says, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked, he lived. That's pretty crazy. God instructs his people to receive the vaccine by simply looking. In order to be healed, they need to simply look at the serpent. God didn't instruct his people to memorize some Bible passages or say a special prayer. All they were to do was to simply look. Whether you were in pain or paralyzed, whether you were at the brink of death, just look and you'd be healed. Nobody was disqualified. Nobody was ineligible. Nobody was too far or too late. All you needed to do, all you needed to do was to look. The word for look means to fix your gaze. You were to look at the bronze snake like you would look at a lifeguard swimming towards you as you're drowning in the middle of the ocean because you have no other shot. You have no chance except the Savior coming. And so you had to fix your gaze at the serpent. And this leads us to the main character of our story. Because as we read the story of Israel and the desert serpent, we see the virus and the vaccine. But it points us to something truer, better, and more powerful. It points us to the sign of the desert serpent fulfilled in Christ. Our story takes place in a unique time in the story of Israel. But this story has special meaning, not because of what happened in Israel's history, as important as that might be. It's special for us today, right now, because it reminds us and helps us to rise above this story to see the story of all stories, the story of the one true, better, and more powerful hero. And we see this because this story in Numbers 21 actually shows up again in the Gospel of John. 
In John chapter 3, we see a conversation that takes place between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Jewish religious leader, uh, ruler, and he shows up at night, approaches Jesus. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, he asks Jesus, he tells Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. No one can do these things unless God's with him. And Jesus replies to him, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the rest of the conversation plays out uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus, and it has to do with how a person can be born again. And here, in the middle of this conversation, we find John 3, 16, the most famous, the most well-known verse in the Bible. Everyone knows John 3, 16. Even all the central kids probably know John 3, 16. John 3, 16 says, uh, in it Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. No single verse has impacted the world and impacted history as much as this verse. It tells us that God loves us. Our sins deserve punishment. What God did to bring us salvation and how we can receive it. It's the most concise summary of the gospel. And just before Jesus says this, in verse 16, in verses 14 and 15, what he does is he points back to our ancient story in Numbers 21. And, he's, and he points back to this story to show that he himself came to fulfill the meaning and purpose of this story. In verse 14, he tells Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus tells us that the story of the desert serpent is a sign that he himself fulfills as the savior of the world. Just like the bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole to represent God's wrath for the sins of Israel, Jesus was lifted up on a cross as the reality of God's wrath for the sins of the world. Just like the bronze serpent was lifted up on a wooden pole, the Son of God was lifted up on a wooden cross. Just as God used what is cursed to heal Israel, the surprising scandal of the gospel is that Jesus himself became cursed in order to heal sinners. Just as God called Israel to simply look to the desert serpent for salvation, God calls sinners to simply look to Jesus for salvation. And just as God's love for Israel moved him to forgive and heal Israel, God's love for you moved him to love and forgive you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to give you life. And in order to do that, the Savior became a curse, was lifted up on a cross. He took the toxin of God's wrath for you because he loves you. So what? Friends, as I look around this room uh, and think about all the stories of the lives that make up everyone sitting here, I see stories of redemption and salvation and rescue from sin, slavery, addictions, and death. I see stories of God's grace flowing down to the worst of us, to us who mess up over and over and over again. I see stories of God forgiving sinners, healing sinners, rescuing sinners, renewing sinners, and giving sinners new life, new hope. I see stories of hearts and lives, Marriages and families, generations being changed for our good 
and his glory. Everything good in our stories has nothing to do with us earning it or deserving it. It has everything to do with God who loves us and cares for us and went through the worst to give us his best. And so, as you go today, may your lives reflect and continue to tell the story of God's grace. As you go and live out this week, let's look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let's look to the one in whom we find forgiveness, healing, and life. Let's look to the one who in the most surprisingly scandalous way saved you by giving up everything for you. Let's look to our Savior in wonder and gaze at his beautiful grace. Because as we do, it's there that we will find life. Amen. Let us pray. God, thank you that, uh, that you so love the world. You gave your only son that whoever, no matter who they are, believes in Jesus, no matter how wretched, how reckless, how weak, how messed up we might be, that we won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand and respond.